There's a sack. A sack? A sack. Hmm. A sack. Big? Yes. Gray. Like old kwacha. Marks on the outside. No shadows. That's how I know it is moving. Something is moving inside it? You've just been listening to Namwali Serpel reading The Sack, a dark marvel of a short story that in 2015 was named the winner of the prestigious Kane Prize for African writing. Welcome to Chapter and Verse, the books and arts podcast that delves into the stories that grip our cultural imagination. I'm your host, Scott Saul, from UC Berkeley's English department and its Townsend Center for the Humanities. And today we'll be hearing excerpts from The Sack and exploring the short story with its author, Namali Serpel. The Sack is one of those rare short stories that dazzles, intrigues, and unsettles you in equal measure. Novelist Zoe Wickham, the chair of the Kane Prize Committee, declared it formally innovative, stylistically stunning, haunting, and enigmatic in its effects. Namali Serpel is an author and critic and my colleague here in UC Berkeley's English department, which is why I'm just going to call her Namwali from now on. Her work as a literary critic centers around questions of aesthetics and ethics, how we read, and what the experience of reading delivers to us. As a fiction writer, she has published widely in McSweeney's, Tin House, and N Plus One, among other venues, and is currently working on a new novel, which we eagerly await, with the title The Old Drift. One thing to note before we present my conversation with Namwali, there was a door near our recording room that kept opening and closing shut during the taping, so apologies for the environmental noise on this episode of Chapter and Verse. Now let's go into the conversation. Now, before um, we hear a part of the sack, the opening part, is there anything you'd like our listeners to know or anything you'd like to say so that they're prepared to take in the story? The story begins in medias race, so I will as well. Sounds good. The sack. There's a sack. A sack? A sack. Hmm. A sack. Big? Yes. Gray. Like old kwacha. Marks on the outside, no shadows. That's how I know it is moving. Something is moving inside it? The whole sack is moving. Down a dirt road with a ditch on the side, with grass and yellow flowers, there are trees above. Is it dark? Yes, but light is coming. It is morning. There are some small birds talking, moving. The sack is dragging on the ground. There's a man pulling it behind him. Who is this man? I can't see his face. He is tallish. His shirt has stains on the back. No socks. Businessman shoes. His hands are wet. Does he see you? I don't know. I'm tired now. Close the curtains. Yes, Buana. Jay left the bedroom and went to the kitchen. The wooden door was open, but the metal security gate was closed. The sky looked bruised. The insects would be coming soon. They had already begun their electric clicking in the garden. He thought of the man in the bedroom, hating him in that tender way he had cultivated over the years. Jay washed the plates from lunch. He swept. A chicken outside made a popping sound. Jay sucked his teeth and went to see what was wrong. The Asabi boy was standing outside the security gate. The boy held the bucket handle with both hands, the insides of his elbows splayed taut. His legs were streaked white and gray. How do you expect me to know you are here if you are quiet? 
Jay asked as he opened the gate. The boy shrugged, a smile dancing upwards and then receding into the settled indifference of his face. Jay told the boy to take off his patapatas and reached for the bucket. Groaning with its weight, Jay heaved the unwieldy thing into the sink. He could just make out the shape of the bream, flush against the inside of the bucket, its fin protruding. Jay felt the water shift as the fish turned uneasily. A big one today, eh? Jay turned and smiled. The boy still stood by the door, his hands clasped in front of him. His legs were reflected in the parquet floor, making him seem taller. Do you want something to eat? The boy assented with a diagonal nod. You should eat the fish you catch. It is the only way to survive, Jay said. I told him about the first dream, but I did not tell him about the second. In the second dream, I am inside the sack. The cloth of it is pressing right down on my eyes. I turn one way, then the other. All I can see is gray cloth. There is no pain, but I can feel the ground against my bones. I am curled up. I hear the sound of the sack sweeping like a slow broom. I've been paying him long enough, paying down his debt, that he should treat me like a real buona. He does his duties, yes, but he lacks deference. His politics would not admit this, but I've known this man since we were children. I know what the color of my skin means to someone of our generation. His eyes have changed. I think he is going to kill me. I think that is what these dreams are telling me. Nyla, I cannot remember your hands. It's beautiful. Thank you. I, I want to spend most of our time on the story itself, but before we delve into it, uh, maybe we could talk about the origin of the story. Um, you know, what was the seed of the story, and how easy was it for the story to find the form that it eventually took? You know, bet- with the third-person narration and part of it, at the first-person narration from the the man or Buana's mm-hmm. perspective. Uh, so. The story has several origin points. Mm-hmm. Um, one is a dream I had when I was about 17 years old, um, and I dreamt about a sack, and I didn't know whether I was inside it or outside of it. So that was something that I found very unsettling, and I wanted to depict. Um, I was also inspired by uh, a Japanese horror movie by Takashi Miike called mm-hmm. Audition, which mm-hmm. revolves around a sack. And I was inspired by a Roberto Bolaño story called The Death of Enrique Lin, which is about uh, dreams. Uh, it's about a dream sequence. And I was the structure of the story in its first iteration was largely the same. But the insertion of the first-person narrative parts came in a, in a revision. And it came because I wanted to give the story a... Uh, I wanted to be inside the sack a little mm. bit. I wanted to be inside that um, person's perspective. And I also wanted to give a little bit more context for what was going on in what is otherwise a very external, almost camera-like vision of the events. Yeah, and I think, I mean, there's so much that the first-person passages do, and we can talk about that more, but one thing I think it does is it really destabilizes us. You talk about being outside the sack or inside the sack. It's also about the balance of our affections for these different people. I think from the outside, it's the story of, you know, a a master and a servant. And our sympathies would begin uh, with the servant who's being ordered imperiously to do this and that Mm -hmm. by the master. But the more we go on and we get inside the head of the the master being served, the more, uh, you could say, our, our 
affections get split and confused and confounded mm-hmm. and expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, is that something that you were, you know, kind of working to, to deepen over the yeah, course of the story? Yeah, absolutely. Because I wanted to give a sense that these two men were once equals and that this dynamic of servitude, um, of paying down a debt, of treating one person like a buana or a boss is an emotional and economic development over time rather than something that has been in place from the beginning of their relationship. So it's a change in their relationship. So to have the reader undergo that shift as well over the course of the story, trying to understand what this hierarchy is, who has power, was very important to me. Yeah, who has power, uh, you know, we know, but it's so unclear, you know, we know that one of them's named Jacob and one of them's named Joseph. Yes. And uh, Jacob being the father of Joseph. And so there could be some kind of, in the Bible. Oh, yes. In, not not <laughs> yes, in the story. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but in terms of the, 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 the biblical um, resonance of that, yeah. you know, you think of a father having, you know, some kind of power over a son, but we, we don't know which one is Jacob and which one is Joseph. And that seemed yeah. to me uh, quite telling, you know, in terms of the structure and how the story works. Yeah. And I should, I should note that um, the choice to refer to the characters as the man and Jay is purposive in exactly that way because I wanted it to be unclear which of these men becomes the servant to the other. And I should say as, as a matter of context that this is actually the last chapter of a novel, <laughs> which a lot of people don't know because it was published in a short story anthology. But like Muzungu, the short story that was previously shortlisted for the Kane Prize, it's part of a novel. And it's part of the novel you mentioned earlier, The Old Drift. So we follow Jacob and Joseph through their childhood and their adulthood in this novel, and they end up in this place as Mm. these older men. And I wanted it to be unclear which one of them ended up being um, the servant to the other, in part because what's more important to me about them is their relationship not their identity, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, well, in some ways, their identity is formed through the relationship as exactly. opposed to standing outside of it, right? Exactly. And now, you mentioned that um, they had been comrades, you mm-hmm. know, in arms, you know, fighting for a, a world of, a society of the people, I think it's called. Yeah. Uh, then this hierarchy develops. And that's where we kind of begin in medias res with they have this hierarchical relationship. But the very first thing that happens is that relationship itself gets destabilized by the entrance of the boy yes. with the bream. And so their relationship is being destabilized. But I also felt like the language of the story is destabilizing or, you know, to use that literary term, defamiliarizing. Yeah, I think the... Um, I'm, I'm very inspired by um, Borges and Kafka as surrealists and something that I realized about both of those writers a long time ago is that what distinguishes them from what we think of as magical realism or kind of ghost stories or something like that is this very material vision, this very, um, this kind of heft. Even though Kafka's writing about dreamlike things, everything is heavy, everything has weight, it has texture. Um, I think of the, the, the object that the family man finds on on the stairs um, in one of his stories. It's 
this bizarrely uh, visceral and material and textural thing. So there was part of me that was trying to access the weirdness that comes when you focus on those haptic and heavy textures. Mm-hmm. There's so many moments like that where the, the story opens up. I'll, I'll, I'll push us into another one mm-hmm. when uh, Jay goes to um, attend to these chickens. I'll, I'll read here. This is the, it's on the top of page 291, uh, a few, few pages in. Um, and I'll, I'll read from here. It says, The security gate was scaly with insects now, some so heavy their bodies chimed against the hollow metal bars. Jay opened it and descended the short set of steps outside. He squatted to open the thatch door of the coop. He could hear, he could hear the creaking, purring sound of the birds. Light from the house slivered the dark. Jay inched along, his hip bone clicking as he went from one chicken to the next. They pivoted their heads and puffed their feathers. The last chicken sat upright on its nest, but it wasn't moving. Jay heard a shudder and scanned the wall. The boy, crouching in the corner, light modeled. Jay turned back to the chicken and inched closer to it, reaching for it. The feathers were strung with light, brittle spines. The bird fell limp in his hand. Then he saw them, hordes of them, spilling down the chicken's body, rolling around its neck, massing from its beak. Jay started back. The chicken caved in as a flood of ants washed over it. Now that has to be, I mean, it's just such a terrifying passage. (laughs) And you really, uh, I I think to my sense is that you manipulate the reader um, intensely there where then he saw them. Well, what's them? And you sort of, really, you know, you don't know their ants. Uh, uh, but the, there's so much uh, kind of things that are off about the scene, even before we get to the ants. You know, where the the birds are creaking and purring, and these animals not doing what you expect them to do. Yeah, I mean, I I wanted to do something uncanny. I wanted to give the reader chills as much as possible. Um, I, I, I like manipulating my readers the way that Hitchcock did or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read about white ants as a superstition in a book called Tales of Zambia. And it's mm-hmm. basically a collection of folk superstitions. And the description of this white ant situation was about a white, about a horde of white ants consuming an animal, and I think it was a small dog or something. Um, but I thought I tried to imagine what that would actually look like, and I just found it so disconcerting and terrifying that I thought, well, I must, I have to try to capture that. Um, so I think a lot of the defamiliarized language there is an attempt to get at my own. Uh, heebie-jeebies. Well, let's uh, let's talk a bit. Another um, thing that goes on here uh, is the kind of political allegory of it. We, yeah. we touched on this a bit. Um, we, you know, we get early on in the story. Um, the man saying, "You know, I know what the color of my skin means to someone." Of our generation, yeah. But you know, on the other hand, it's not exactly clear what that color is, yeah, um, or, or how it should relate to the other person's color. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, what what's uh, what happens when you what do you think happens to the reader when you drop these sort of clues, which I think we're trained by the book, by the story to really look intensely at these moments. Yeah. Um, because we're not given an over-explanatory framework yeah. in the beginning, so we have to seize on the clues. The only ones we're going to get. But the more we parse them, the more it's like, okay, what's what is that? What's the meaning of that? Yeah. So Nyla is uh, wearing a salwa kameez, which indicates that she is Indian. Um, although Jay is also wearing a Nehru shirt, so <laughs> that confuses things. Well, slightly. and it gets it that way that you know. Um, People take on like that. Like he's wearing a narrow sh- uh, jacket or shirt. Yeah. It's like you know that's about that moment of the non-aligned nations exactly. and the power of the example of Nehru, mm-hmm. and you know, but it's a fashion. Yeah. And so he's self-fashioning by make by putting on the narrow jacket. But that's not to say that he is Indian. But right. he might be. But he might. He feels be. affinity. Yeah. I mean, I think because her name is also Indian, I I I think there's probably more evidence in the story for her um, race than for either Jacob or Joseph's. Um, Many people assume because of the line you quoted about the color of one's skin meaning something to someone of their generation, and because of a line where I say, um, treating me, he's, he's, how far he has fallen, sweeping and cooking for me like I'm a Muzungu. And so Muzungu means white person um, or foreigner. And most people assume because of those sentences that the man is a white person, but there's to say to be tr- treating me like I'm a white person already assume presumes that he is not a white person, right? So, what I've well, realized, not that kind of white person, right? right you know what exactly. I mean? Because that would imply exactly. that certain alienation between or distance between yeah. the person and the mazungu. And the play between the words Buana and comrade in the story is actually something that I discovered. I've been doing archival research in Zambia for this novel and looking at the independence party that eventually achieved independence for us from the British, which is the United National Independence Party, UNEP. Um, Our first president, Kenneth Kaunda, was a leader of that party. And there's some point in the Congresses where they've been referring to each other as Buana, and someone says, why are we using this word? We need to use a different word. So they start calling each other comrade. Mm. And um, so there's part of the play that I'm, you know, with this sense of equality shifting to a sense of hierarchy is how much sarcasm is there or irony is there every time Jay says Buana. Um, and, but again, because I use that word, most people assume, well, Buana means a white person because that's, that's a boss, right? And I'm like, actually, no, people refer to black people as Buana as well and brown people as Buana as well. Um, again, what was much more important to me about the story is that there is some kind of racial distinction, not necessarily what the identities firmly are. Um, I was thinking, in some respect, of Toni Morrison's story, Recitative, which mm-hmm. has a character named Salt and a character named Pepper, but you never know which one is black and which one is white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, actually, I was definitely thinking about in the, that in the background as well, um, which is a great story that our listeners should uh, uh, believe. It's maybe her only short, it published is. short story. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, these you know there is that um, perception of some kind of racial difference in that story, but the meaning of it is unclear and yet means everything to how we interpret the story. Yeah. But I didn't necessarily get a sense in this experiment that how we assign one person uh, a certain racial identity or another actually 
determines the meaning of it as much as in recitative, where it seems like we, we and not that we need to want to bring that in, but it seems yeah, like yeah. it has more consequential um, aspects in Toni Morrison's story where we think, oh, this person is, is against busing. If they're white, it means this. If they're black, it means this. Right. Whereas your story kind of holds things, I think, more in suspension. Yeah, I think it's more a matter of how do these power dynamics get refracted through race when they actually might have nothing to do with race, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And and how unstable are the words that we use? I mean, like, like you're race, talking about Babuana, yeah. it can mean one thing if it's pronounced seriously, uh, officiously, another if it's pronounced ironically, sarcastically. Yeah. And there's so many examples, I think, of that, of where the language... Um, gets wrenched mm-hmm. uh, in a new way. I want to talk maybe, we haven't talked as much about Nyla in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a moment basically near the end where they, um, Jay and the man are sitting at a supper table and they haven't really had this kind of um, mano a mano talk where they're kind of equals again in some mm-hmm. sense, at least in the way that they're sitting. Mm-hmm. And uh, they start talking about Nyla. And they basically talk about her in opposite ways, you might say. One, the man through kind of romantic feathery light, you know, that's yeah. how he sees her. And uh, Jay really has, goes on, uh, I mean, a shockingly, um, you might say misogynist um, mm-hmm. way of talking about this dream he has where Nyla gives birth to a deformed or some kind of baby that has another baby attached to it, mm-hmm. and then he blames her for the baby um, mm-hmm. because uh, I won't use the language you use because yeah. it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. But the way he talks about her, it's it's shocking because you don't uh, think of Jay as having that kind of dream life or mm-hmm. having that kind of anger towards women and Nyla in particular. Yeah, and I think um, there's we we follow Nyla for a while as well in the novel and we experience her as a child and as a young woman um, and as part of this political movement and the story says um, and it is the case that she dies giving birth um, to a child that may be Jay's or may be the man's and mm. that's the question of paternity is one that remains ambiguous in the novel as well but she's clearly um, having sex with both of them. And the way that their relationships with her are distinct have something to do with their own friendship, mm. um, but they also have to do with the, the first encounter they have with her as children, because the three of them are, are friends from very, a very young age. I can't wait to read this whole novel. <laughs> it's going to be so good. It's going to be so good. And, and, you know, in a way, you know, uh, you might say it's... it's a bit curious to read the the final the end, end before the uh, other chapters that come before it, but in some ways I'm just it, it's it's like you know we have to re- read the prequel, have to see the prequel. <laughs> it's so um, fascinating what, what you've given us. I mean, one thing I, I think that. I'm, makes this story, again, so reverberating and um, unique is how complicated the emotions are in the story. Mm-hmm. And it's not just as we don't think of a, there being a master and a servant that gets all topsy-turvy by the end. So, you know, pleasure and 
pain are, are all confounded yeah. throughout what you know what we get. Um, the very beginning, I think it's in the passage you read us, Jay is um, looking at the man and he's, you say he's hating the man in that tender way he had cultivated over the years. Yeah. So hatred and um, tenderness, <laughs> how, how do they coexist? But yet they do. I mean, that's the spectrum of emotions that yeah. do come through. I mean, I think um, I was just speaking with a friend about uh, Elena Ferrante's um, quartet the Neapolitan novels, and a lot of people keep referring to it as a, novel, a set of novels about female friendship. And I was saying it, that word, that term just feels so diluted and weak uh, to describe the nature of that friendship. And I said, you know, we have a paucity of terms and even kind of ways of understanding friendship, mm-hmm. which is in some ways as complex, if not more complex, um, than love <laughs> itself. Mm-hmm. And um, I, what I was really interested in with these men um, is the way that a third person can kind of dictate the way a friendship operates over time. And so that even in their even in that person's absence. Exactly. That triangulation is, you know, very important. And I think the sack is a very literal, um, you know, figure in the story, but it's also interesting to me that I think people assume um, that I'm, you know, that this is a, a story that's very much about men. But I, I've, you know, I, I've noted that a sack is also a womb, and we have a womb within a womb in that dream that Jay mm-hmm. describes to the man. Um, Nyla's womb, in a sense, is the center of the story, and this inability to access it and this inability to understand the kind of power she had over them um, has dictated so much of their lives. So I think what that would produce would be a kind of complex of emotion. I was I was interested too in the way that, you know, I say, it's, I think in that same passage, the sky looked bruised. Um, I, I very often take recourse to the notion of pressing a bruise, which mm. has this kind of obsessive but almost comforting quality. Mm-hmm. And to hate something, and this is the thing about Jay, this is why Jay can be so misogynistic about Nyla, is that he's he's so certain about everything. He's so sure. Mm-hmm. And so he's he goes back to hate as a kind of comfort because it's so clear. He's like, I can just hate you. Hmm. And he says the same thing about Nyla, right? That it's a way to accommodate his passion for her without involving himself in the messiness that mm-hmm. is loving someone. Mm-hmm. And in, yet it's that tender, I mean, because, was that because he kind of loves the hate or loves that he is performing the hate? or? I know? mean, tender is an interesting word. I, one of our other colleagues wrote to me um, about the story, and she noted the relation between tender and bruise, because to be tender is both a positive thing, mm-hmm. to you know, tenderness is mm-hmm. one of Nabokov's primary um, uh, qualifications for what makes art art, is te- mm-hmm. curiosity, tenderness, etc., Uh, But tender is also when you feel pain, right? So a bruise can be tender in both of those ways. It can feel like a a comfort, like I was saying, but also can be tender in a a painful way. It's it's such an incredible story. I would ask all our readers uh, 
to our listeners to read it not once but several times you can find it uh, on that website of the the Kane Prize of the Kane yeah. Prize which is wonderful I wanted to talk for a second about uh, the reception of the story mm-hmm. and especially how the Kane Prize has affected how your writing gets read mm. in the sense that you're a you know you have you wear many hats you're a distinguished literary critic uh, you're a writer who has experiments with, a creative writer who experiments with form in all kinds of ways and yeah. have written in different genres. Um, you also are a person who was born in Zambia, grew up there. Uh, and now many people, I think, are probably coming to your fiction through the Kane Prize mm-hmm. and through that frame of that sense of you being an African writer. Yeah. How do you feel like that's, you know, illuminating and constructive and clarifying, you know, to have people coming through and saying, oh, well, this is a great piece of African writing that came out uh, in this past year. And how is it possibly not so helpful or obscuring of some things? Well, I think um, the Kane Prize is a wonderful platform for audiences to be exposed to new writing um, from Africa. And I think this story to me and the novel as a whole is very much about the quiddity of my country, about the specificity of Zambia, uh, which is often an oft neglected uh, nation in the continent. Um, so to me, I feel very proud and very happy that this story can represent my Zambianness. I think the term African literature as such is restrictive because it's vague. Um, because it's overly broad. and well, it, We have a billion people living on the continent in so many nations, so many cultures. And, and so many languages, so yes. many, and so many, you know, different political kind of backgrounds as well. And there's, a, I think, we, because we have a kind of set canon of African literature, as we understand it, and most of that canon is realist fiction, there does seem to be some limitation that happens uh, when you ascribe um, that label or just paste that label onto a story. The Kane Prize, I was very, I'm very pleased that they chose this story of the two stories of mine that have been nominated, because the first story is much more in the in the kind of land of of um, realist fiction, and part of the novel is in that genre. But part of the novel is in this kind of surrealist um, and futuristic mode. Um, this story actually takes place in 2050, so there's, mm. <laughs> which may help explain some of the mechanical language you were looking mm-hmm. at there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was very pleased to have a story so odd and so weird and uh, uncanny be the one that they selected. And they're, they're tending to expand their vision of what African writing is. The last two, three years, we've had um, stories win that have been described as Joycean. Um, and the you know, Zoe Wickham's incredibly flattering terms about my story uh, highlight that it is not straight realism. So I'm, I'm very pleased because I think the only by publishing more African stories of different kinds can we have a more capacious and robust use of that term. Well, and I thought that your um, choice to share the prize money with your fellow nominees also was a way of saying all these stories should be read, not just one, and they they all pr- project a different idea of what African literature might be. Um, it's been so wonderful talking with you. 
I can't wait to read the novel as a whole. Uh, and um, that's where we'll end our conversation for today. You've just been listening to Namwali Serpel. You can find a link to the text of her short story, The Sack, and links to other writings by Namwali on the Chapter and Verse website at www.chapterversepod.com. Thanks also go out to Gina Pollock and Teresa Katsarillis, co-producers of Chapter and Verse, and to the UC Berkeley Townsend Center for the Humanities, which has provided funding for the show. 